Welcome to our podcast, Politics 101 with David Orr. Today we continue our series on municipal government with a focus on the coming April 4th elections. To hear this podcast or to listen to our previous guests, including Alderman Scott Wagesback, Alderman Maria Haddon, and former Alderman and author Dick Simpson, go to Spotify and or rss.com. Okay, our guests today are Delmarie Cobb and Dan Cohen. Let me tell you a little bit about each. Um, we could talk for a long time, but we won't <laughs> on their backgrounds. Uh, Delmarie Cobb has been an electoral strategist uh, and pollster for many candidates, um, as well as presidential candidates, including uh, Jesse Jackson and Hillary Clinton. She's also more recently founded Ida's Legacy an organization named for the crusading journalist Ida B. Wells, a famous Chicago one. Uh, she also, by the way, played a key role in electing yours truly uh, <laughs> in an uphill battle to become county clerk. You know, this kind of not that well-known alderman upset the machine and became county clerk back in 1990. Thank you, Del Marie. I now have a pension <laughs> because of you. Okay. Right. I should have joined um, you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Dan Cohen is a political strategist and pollster. Um, he's presently in Chicago, but he does work pretty much around the globe, including Iceland. <laughs> um, one of his first big wins that he deservedly is proud of was on marriage equality back in Massachusetts. He's done a lot of work out east. His first race in the Chicago area was Will Gazzardi. And he was advised, uh, advisor to the Chewy campaign when he ran against Emmanuel in 2015 and many other more current candidacies. So uh, those are our, our two kind of experts today. And like anybody else, we're all wondering what in the world's gonna happen with this mayoral runoff. And if I'm counting right, uh, about 13 runoff elections. I'm still assuming at this point that La Spada in the first ward uh, has been chosen. So I think we're down to 13 runoffs. So let me start right this. On the mayoral runoff, both of you have been around the block. Let me just ask her, any brief comments on how and why we ended up with Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson? Start out with nine candidates. Fascinating because they had seven black candidates, okay? Only one white candidate and one Latino candidate. Either you want to start on that? Well, I think that's uh, the reason we got... Um... Paul Vallis is what you just said, uh, the number of black candidates and him being the only white candidate, uh, especially given that the voting public in Illinois has rejected him three other times. Uh, he ran for governor in 2002 and he lost. He ran with uh, Pat Quinn, who was an incumbent uh, as his lieutenant governor in 2014 and, he, and they lost, the ticket lost. And then he ran for mayor in 2019 and came in ninth. So the fact that he suddenly has risen to be the savior of Chicago uh, after uh, three failed, uh, failed attempts says this because he was the only white candidate in the race. Uh, Dan? Yeah, no, I, I mean, <laughs> go, go ahead. I think, I mean, that's, that's definitely the case. I mean, he had Elaine all to himself. 
Uh, and it's, it's not just being the only white candidate. Uh, it was being the only candidate who was viewed as viable for whatever reason, uh, but also was running, I wouldn't really call it a conservative line, although people try to portray him that way, but a more traditional, moderate, and also specifically the hyper-focus on public safety, which is the top issue uh, for the voters in the city right now. Uh, so people who are frustrated with the current administration, but not enamored of one of the other candidates, had a very easy place to land. Um, and that's and he never had anyone really competing with him. If anything, Willie Wilson was competing with him on the, the more conservative public safety side. Uh, so he pretty much had a free lane. And it's if you think about this, when Lori Lightfoot kind of emerged through a pack of much more established candidates four years ago, it was a similar situation where you had numerous candidates who were far more establishment, uh, had ties to Burke in various ways, which was certainly a liability. And she had that sort of independent reformer lane all to herself. And it's not like she ran away with it, but she was able to get a get strong spot in the runoff. How that translates for the runoff, though, with Vallis landing where he did and Brandon Johnson being the most progressive viable candidate, that's anybody's guess. And I think that it's a little bit fascinating watching um, how things are aligning as it goes forward. Yeah, and I think it shows that, um, I mean, this is actually both wings of the Democratic Party on full display. Um, we get to see the conservative wing of the Democratic Party as well as the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And uh, as you said, Dan, he, uh, Paul Vallis was running in a lane by himself, but he was also running as a law and order candidate. And so it wasn't just public safety, it was law and order. And Willie Wilson uh, w was a little bit too extreme when it came to law and order. Uh, when you talk about, you know, ch chase them down like rabbits, um, that, you know, that did him in, uh, whether he realizes it or not, uh, because he didn't even come close to what he, uh, the votes he got in 2019. I'm assuming yeah. with no, no evidence that often what happens Okay, particularly when there's nine, in this case, African-American candidates, as people saw that five of those candidates, uh, we'd say, had little chance, or at least four of them had little chance. Uh, and since their vote numbers did go down uh, for Jamal and Sawyer and some others, I'm assuming without real evidence that that, uh, that advantage went to uh, Brandon Johnson as people decided uh, toward the end, they might switch, they might prefer Willie as their favorite. Uh, again, I don't have any evidence for that at the moment. I'm just assuming that often happens. People, they had the choice, but they decided to go elsewhere. And I'm assuming because looking at the numbers and how Brandon came up and Lori pretty much stayed the same, that that advantage went to Brandon. Well, the other thing I, they've got to think... know... Well, I just quickly, they've got to know you're running and uh, the other candidates didn't have any money. And I, I think that the as things shaped up, I, I, there are a few different things that happened. 
um, in the in the polling, and there, there was abundant polling, and it was all over the place because polling municipal races is quite an art because you don't have any kind of partisan benchmarks, and turnout can be very unpredictable. But that said, Brandon's votes, especially when, as he started to move into the point of being viable, uh, were a lot more jazzed. Some of Paul Vallis's base uh, were more jazzed. And if you looked at the polling in the last month, there's a thing that pollsters do to try to have a smaller number of undecided voters, even when there's a lot of people who are still, you know, might change their mind. And you have to kind of force people to pick a candidate. But whenever someone was forcing someone to pick a candidate, they were more likely to go for Lori Lightfoot or Chewy Garcia. Why? Because those were the most consistently known quantities. But if you're being forced into that, you're undecided. The Brandon Johnson people and the Paul Vallis people were like, no, that's that's my candidate. Um, and, you know, it, it becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy, right? It's it's really uncommon that someone without significant backing and, and again, I mean, Sophia, Jamal, you know, uh, Cam, Rod Sawyer, like at some point early on in the process, if you're trying to make up your mind, who would I want to be the next mayor? It has to be someone who has a chance of being the next mayor. That normally would have hindered Brandon Johnson, except you get a very interesting thing that happened on the progressive side of the electorate where Chewy came in arguably in first place, certainly a contender for first place early on in his entrance and would normally have been blocking that progressive lane from Brandon Johnson. But for whatever reason, they decided that they were in a general election <laughs> against Lori Lightfoot and they ran away from the progressive lane and pushed progressive voters, especially younger white progressive voters overwhelmingly to Brandon Johnson and allowed him to, to run away with it. It's certainly a good lesson to remind all of us when people look at elections in December, maybe just two and a half months or two months before the election, how much can change. Okay. And, um, and again, we, we don't have all the time in the world to deal with that, but um, you could certainly argue in a low turnout election, one of the advantages that Brandon Johnson had was a fairly strong ground game with a relatively small amount of people voting. That really makes the ground game more important. And it clearly, um, there's a lot of dedicated people, whether we say it's because of uh, CTU or working families, but that is a factor. Uh, let's jump ahead now. Okay, so now we have these two people. Uh, one of them is, is going to be a mayor. What is your advice or strategy or thoughts on how can each one of them get there? Um, I, I assume neither of you are saying that Paul Vallis has it in the bag, uh, even though some people are saying that, although I see a poll out today that has Brandon Johnson in the lead. Um, but what, what's it going to take for either candidate to put together that majority? Well, I think that um, Brandon can put together a progressive and a majority, as well as uh, the African-American community. For, first of all, if you look at 
part of his uh, votes, they were very similar to what Lori got uh, when she ran in 2019 in the, in the first half. Um, he did not get the black vote. She got the black vote this time. Uh, but uh, as an African-American who lives on the West side and, and, um, and as a progressive, he can cobble together the progressive vote. He can cobble together the black vote. He can cobble together the Latino vote. And, and then he's got his rainbow coalition. So if you've got um, people like Teresa Ma and uh, Josina, Josina Marita, and I don't know where they are necessarily, but they're more progressive. So that's the Asian vote. Uh, if Chewy Garcia comes on board with uh, Brandon, and he certainly owes it to CTU because CTU pulled him out of the political wilderness when they anointed him to, to replace uh, Karen Lewis in 2014 in the race for mayor, I mean 15 in the race for mayor. And then you, uh, Brandon gets the majority of the black vote and keeps the vote that he already has among white and, and maybe grows that some, then you know that's your combination to win. Ballas is not going to be able to do that in terms of all of those different groups. I don't believe he'll be able to build on all of those different groups in the same way. And Dan? Yeah. So I, I think one of the, the transitions that you have to make when you go into a runoff in these you know crowded fields, <clears throat> it's sometimes, um, I think of it like they would say in the Super Bowl, like the most difficult thing in, in, in football is the, is the halftime discussion during the Super Bowl where you have to get your team doing something totally different from everything that got you to that point um, to, to make it down the stretch. And that's the challenging thing for campaigns because they will look at, wow, what got us into this runoff? And there's an instinct to replicate that, but it's like, well, no, but that literally didn't work on all the votes that you need now moving forward. Um, what we don't know and there's two polls out so far. One has Vallis in the lead, one has Brandon Johnson in the lead. So we're back just like as we were before. We don't really know. There's an organic starting place for any runoff, which is not the number of votes that each candidate got. It's the number of preferences between those two candidates because lots of people who voted for Chewy, who voted for Laurie, who voted for the other candidates have a clear preference between the two people in the runoff. And that's where we have that uncertainty. Um, that said, you know, what does, like, yes, Brandon has a more natural, he's starting from behind, but he has a more natural to see coalition. And don't worry, I agree completely. Like that's, that's how you pull that together. That's made easier if the attacks on Vallis uh, resonate uh, with the voters. And I worry about that. You know, I, I think when, when you, bring up however many, you know, 15 times it seemed like during the debate they had a couple days ago, we just talk about how he's this right-wing Republican. Well, you know, he's conservative in a lot of ways. He's not a right-wing Republican. He's a conservative Democrat. You always have to raise the question of, can that start to reflect poorly on the person making that attack? You know, and then they went on, on the air with that the line about, you know, abortion. So I think that they should be very circumspect about how they characterize Paul Ballas, because if they go too far, that can reflect poorly on the person moving forward. Ballas, I believe, has, you know, I think Ballas has done a great service by Willie Wilson and Del Murray's your point about when he said chasing people down like rabbits, like 
everyone was offended by that. There was this thing called the decoy effect. When you when you have a someone saying things like that, it makes a person who would normally be viewed maybe as too conservative, too law and order, to your point, suddenly look a lot more reasonable. And I think Willie Wilson really helped him out by people who wanted a more tough on crime approach. So, okay, no, Willie Wilson is the one who is saying something that's clearly bad and that gave Vallis a pass there. Um, but Vallis has to establish to people that he's actually, you know, I would say a moderate Democrat. That's what he needs to put forward. He needs to, and I think he tried to do that in the debate when it came up, you know, like why are, you know, the various, you know, um, sometimes Republican donors giving him money. He's like, well, because they want a well-managed city. That's kind of, that's the approach that he should take. Uh, he has to reassure non-ideological people but who tend to be liberal. It is a liberal city for the most part. He has to reassure people that he is not actually that right-wing figure. And then the question, he wants to bring the question back to public safety. Uh, he wants to bring it back to policing because if he's viewed as someone who could be acceptable, then all of a sudden his pathway to getting, he's not gonna win the black vote. He is gonna have to fight very hard uh, for the Latino vote. But if he's able to draw that line on issues of public safety in the communities that are dealing with some of the most significant public safety issues, he's gonna play for 30% maybe on that issue if he can make Brandon look weak on public. So that has to be his play. But again, it's this, you know, it's a, it's a whole game theory thing where they know what each other's path is. So while they're trying to move forward in their path, they're trying to take away the opportunities. Uh, it's, it'll be fascinating to watch. And I think once a few more polls are out, we'll start to get a kind of balance. But it looks like it's going to be competitive, um, which is good for the city, really. Great discussion to have of how do we want to approach things. And they have very different views of that. And one of the things you're seeing is um, because it is a two-man race at this point, that's when you really start get, getting um, the scrutiny of the media. Uh, you may not have gotten the scrutiny before because especially with Vallis, he's a known entity. So to some degree, he got a pass. But now that there are two people in the race, they're going to dig a little deeper. And that's where you're seeing the aggregate effect of is he a Republican or isn't he a Republican? I mean, yes, he has. He says he's a lifelong Democrat. And of course he put that on his commercials only after the issue was raised. That wasn't part of his commercials at first, but like today in the news, you know, they've got all these Facebook posts and all these Twitter posts that he's uh, done over the, over, the, over the years. And yes, you can say that somebody on my staff did it I didn't, I didn't manage my account, but you are supposed to be a manager. That is how you are, that's how you are selling yourself. I am this great manager and you can't manage your Facebook page or your Twitter page. I mean, I know as a consultant, one of the things I tell my clients is don't create any work for me. I do not want to have any work to do and spend a week 
undoing something or cleaning up something that you said on Facebook or Twitter, and then we lose a week. Because if we're going backwards, we're not going forward. So I don't want to spend any time doing that. So there's no such thing as somebody's posting something and we don't know about it. So you, you uh, on that issue, I know it's, um, I don't want to say how big or important it is, but uh, you do not believe that Paul Vallis had somebody else doing his Facebook. He may have had somebody else doing it, but even if he had somebody else doing it, uh, they shouldn't have carte blanche to do and say whatever they want to do or say, because it's your Facebook page. It's your reputation. It's a reflection of you. It's not a reflection of this unknown entity that we don't, who's no name. <laughs> we don't know what their beliefs are. It's about your beliefs. And if your beliefs accumulatively say that you are, uh, you have said things that are negative in terms of critical race theory, in terms of black people, in terms of the city of Chicago, in terms of the city leaders, uh, then that begins to reflect on you. And it does take, get some legs. And I, you know, and I think we're seeing more and more and it's probably getting some legs with some people in the party. I think your, your argument about uh, his claim to fame right or wrong is his management stuff. So that's a pretty powerful argument. Let's just jump for a second to one of Brandon's challenges. Okay. Um, and I don't know if there's any commercials out hitting them on that, but the whole question since the media to a great extent uh, and certainly to a great extent by Vallis is trying to put the entire campaign around public safety or his version of it. Um, what uh, I'm sorry, I got too, too many different trends <laughs> going on here. Um, but I'm trying to find what, to what extent will the alleged connection to defund the police stuff be a factor in the Vallis people perhaps attacking Johnson on that? Uh, Brandon is emphasized over and over again that public safety is crucial to his campaign as well. But what, a, what about that issue of the connectedness to um, some of the friends that were pushing to defund the police? Will they use I, I, that? I think that, I mean, Brandon has been, I just, cause he is a very forthcoming and honest person and he does a lot of podcasts and stuff very casually. He has said things that could be used, especially if things are taken without the larger context and made into, you know, scary attack ads, which frankly, I mean, candidates do all the time. You take a little clip and you go, see, this proves this great larger thing. It's like, ah, no, it doesn't. It was just a random, you know, comment. But I think on balance, Brandon's approach to public safety is more in line with the people of Chicago um, than it sounds when you just think about, ooh, defund, scary. Um, when you actually look at what spending priorities should be, there's over, like people understand that public safety has to be approached beyond the law and order, you know, lens. And that while police have to be part of the solution and the manner in which policing happens has to be part of the solution. That the investments that he's talking about, that's, that is absolutely in line with public opinion, not just with progressives and liberals, but with moderates and conservatives as well who can see as well as anyone, the kind of investments that a city needs in order to have things function properly and what happens if not. So if he's able to weather narrow pointed attacks, he's not radical on public safety. He's really where the people are. 
And and I agree with that. And and again, going back to the uh, posts, uh, online posts, you know, you've got Vallis saying stop and frisk, being in favor of stop and frisk, at least on the posts. Uh, you've got him being endorsed by the FOP. You've got him having a family of police officers. Uh, and and so you, when the question is to Brandon, uh, will you be beholden to CTU? Then the question has to be to Vallis, will you be beholden to the police? And it's not just uh, as he tried to dismiss that and say, well, I never took a penny from them. It's not just about taking money from them. It's about having allegiances to them. It's about aligning yourself with them. And what's interesting about that at this time, Dan, uh, and you said it, is that at a time when we're electing police district council members for a civilian oversight, and the reason we are is because Chicago police since 2004 have been responsible for the city of Chicago and taxpayers spending $1 billion on police misconduct, police wrongful deaths and wrongful convictions that lawsuits against them. And that is why you've got this uh, Laquan McDonald and all of that. And that's why you've got the police district councils and so the idea that you've got one candidate talking about stop and frisk is okay. And the other candidate aligning with the fact that you want police district councils because you, the police need an oversight. You want them to, to, to go uh, to be able to manage and execute the consent decree, all of those things. So that's the argument at this very time is really, who do you go with? I mean, are you, are you really progressive? Or are you conservative? And, and when you're talking about the black community, we are the brunt of the public safety issue. We live it every day. We're under-resourced, we're underemployed, and we're under siege. But what we don't want is stop and frisk. What we don't want is the broken window uh, theory. That's what we don't want. I, I'm going to move us to the aldermanic races a little bit, but um, I, I think it's important what you both just said, because one of the real world we know about politics is the candidates can't always discuss some of these things. What Delmarie was just talking about is kind of the real world, and you were quoted in a very good uh, Guardian uh, article about Chicago and the crime and so forth today, a very good article. Um, the reality is, and we don't have to go into detail with this, but the reality is the black community, as you just pointed out, has had to face crime in serious ways and so many other things decade after decade. Uh, what we're seeing now, to a great extent, is certain areas, like a little downtown, near north, near north, uh, near northwest, areas that are predominantly white that are seeing the carjackings and a number of things. No one's trying to put that down. It's just trying to raise the reality of uh, certain communities. Now, all of a sudden, there's an uproar. So the real question is, there's a lot of things you can't talk about politically, except you can say most people who know a lot about policing do not support stop and frisk. And yet you have a whole right wing coalition that think, oh, that's what saved New York. And the idiot former mayor who is uh, now in trouble for his uh, misleading statements about the election. Uh, but anyway, there's so many things that make when public safety is the focus, 
particularly to the media great extent, it does make that a very difficult election to race, which makes what you just said, Delmar, even more important. How sophisticated will people be to see they have to look beyond their own immediate safety and how they're choosing someone? Um, so thank you for if, that. If, okay, that was, if, one I, more thing. If I can say something real, real, just real sure. quick on that, because I mean, I've been polling around issues of public safety for 20 plus years. And back when I first started doing this, the public safety views were a lot more simplistic. Uh, they were more conservative. They were more reactionary. Over the course of the last decade, attitudes have changed really dramatically. I think people have a far more sophisticated understanding of the different facets that go into what actually makes a safe community and have far more sophisticated views on police. Uh, and those are far more sophisticated than a law and order uh, view and far more sophisticated than a just defund view. The voters are, are far ahead of most of these movements on the understanding of what makes a safe community. And that's, that's very encouraging to, to watch that change over time. I hope you're right, Dan. I think that's very, very important. Um, okay, so because I'm trying to watch the, the time, um, like I said earlier, uh, have a new mayor, but we're also going to have uh, a different city council. Um, we have, if I count us right now, about 13 runoffs, and they're kind of all over the city, north, south, you know. Um, any comments about those? I mean, it could be individuals or races you think are particularly important, but uh, those 13 may have a lot to do with not just the fact who the new mayor is, but which of these individuals will be able to put together a pretty successful working majority of the council. So we don't have to go over each of them. We know uh, our listeners know that there's, uh, we could run through the whole list, the fourth ward, the fifth ward. Um, anyway, all up to the, the 46th and 48th in the lakefront and the 45th Northwest and uh, several Latino communities, several in the African-American community. So on that critical thing, of who is going to be the new city council. Any thoughts? I, I think that some of these runoffs are gonna actually really help define, um, a lot of times these races have impact beyond just who ends up being the older person for that ward, right? So if you look at something like, um, Angela Clay and Kim Walls, where you have a really clear contrast in a ward that could clearly go either way between That's two the ward very on the lake. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that is the kind of very defining ward. It's, it's not, it's not a Logan Square kind of progressive, you know, even though it's a, it's a liberal place. Right. But you have a very, you know, establishment, you know, you might say traditional Democrat, you might say corporate Democrat, you know, in, in Kim Walls, you have a community organizer in Angela Clay, and the funding behind them fits a lot of that same definition, right? You've got the, um, you know, the the Realtors Association threw down nearly $100,000 for Kim Walls. You know, Angela, is has you know the CTU and the nurses and the, the usual suspects there, right? So like that to me is the kind of race that can define the way that the winds are blowing in the city, 
uh, beyond the scope of the actual award. Well, one is in the same way, same can be said. I mean, Fifth Ward, if you look at the Fifth Ward, is almost identical. Uh, you've got Desmond Yancey, who comes out of SEIU, and, um, and also the unions are, are backing him heavily. Uh, and then you have Martina Hong, who was a part of public engagement for uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, Lightfoot's administration. So here's a ward that traditionally has always been progressive. I mean, and independent, uh, and that's their claim to fame. I mean, they wear it with a badge of honor. And, uh, and so here's an opportunity either to continue with the same, I mean, because uh, Leslie Harrison wound up getting in a runoff in 2019 uh, because they tried to say she wasn't independent in some ways, they tried to say she wasn't independent enough, but then in other ways, they said she was too independent because that's why she couldn't get a grocery store. Because if she had been more willing to work with the administration, she would have gotten a grocery store. So, you know, they wanted to have both, have their cake and eat it too. But but for the most part, the reason she did wind up pulling it off, even two, 272 votes, is because uh, they they decided that the they wanted to be independent. That's who they are. That's their claim to fame. That's their legacy. And so it's going to be interesting to see uh, which way they go uh, this time, because it really will tell the future of that ward. Uh, and one thing we can, I think we can all agree upon, is I assume we're all happy about the 14th ward. And that is Alderman Ed Burke will be gone. And Alderman Ed Burke's choice will not be there. In this case, it was a choice of the Latino community. In this case, it was probably Chewy's uh, person, the, mo the more likely, if I understand it right. But so there's a new Alderman in the 14th Ward that will not be holding to the Ed Burke clan. That's pretty fascinating for a lot of us who've had to fight this battle for many, many years. Yeah. Any other races like that? There's certainly going to be, um, I don't know how many more African-American Latino Aldermen will have. I can't. I haven't done the analysis yet, um, but every one of those races, again, will have something to do with whoever is mayor, how they put together that coalition. And what we have to understand is, um, is that this is a long game. It's not a short game. And if you look at the uh, Republicans, they are masters of the long game, which is why they, you know, why the uh, Dobbs decision happened. Uh, because they've been in that fight for a long time, and they know you 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 gain ground incrementally. You don't gain ground overnight, and that's what that's the way I look at the city council. You know, you need 26 votes uh, to be a majority, and so you know you've got the progressive, you've got the uh, social democrats, uh, socialist democrats. And you, you keep adding to it every election. You just keep adding to it. You may not get all, the, all of them at once, but you just want to keep adding to it. And, uh, and as we saw, a lot of the incumbents did uh, retain their seats and, and, or, and or wind up in runoffs. So the hope is that we have a progressive city council because my hope is that we actually could go back to the in original intent of the city council, which is strong city council, weak mayor. And if that will ever happen, I'll be a very happy person. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I, and, uh, go ahead, Dan, yeah. Well, you know, and I think, I mean, of those blocks, if, I mean, you look at the, 
all of a sudden people who just got elected a couple cycles ago are like have tenure within their caucuses, <laughs> right? It's, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for um, the leaders in the progressive caucus and the socialist caucus to say, okay, we have enough of a block whether it is a progressive majority or very close to that, it will be one of the two, right? But to use that power to actually engage and engage with people who don't necessarily on a lot of issues fit into those ideologies, but broaden that coalition and use the power that they have to advance things on policy. You know, I think that when there's a really small number of progressives, the progressives feel the most important thing that we can do is raise our voice and speak truth to power <clears throat> and highlight some of the stuff that isn't happening that ought to have. But then when you start to get up to 15, 20 members, like, okay, wait, no, 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 get, get things, like hold together coalitions, get majorities, move on those things. I'm, I'm, I'm less interested at that time in seeing a moral statement, I want to see moral outcomes, right? That's that's why we elect these people to deliver on this stuff. And I think there's a real opportunity for folks who are in those caucuses currently and who will join them to really, you know, think about the kind of leadership they can offer uh, to deliver on a lot of those uh, those promises. And what's interesting about that is just to see the pushback that the establishment really does not want that to happen, which is why you got the get things done pack that raise a million dollars overnight at the blink of an eye to make sure that we don't have a progressive. They said that they, it was against the, social, uh, the uh, dem socialist Democrats. It wasn't, it really was about progressives and, and making sure that we don't have a progressive city in the way many of us envision it but instead have a city that is business as usual and maintains the status quo. Again, getting back to some of these same individuals who are funding Paul Vallis. Well, I, I hope you're both right. I will say, maybe it's my age. I'm a little more skeptical <laughs> than the two of you at the moment as we've never had a progressive city council. I, don't, I think it's a long way off. Uh, we also have varying definitions of progressive, which is a, something Dan was very politely trying to get at and encouraging our progressive leaders to show leadership and look to form those coalitions that can actually succeed. Um, anyway, I hope you're all right, um, but I do not see it in the immediate future looking at those who've already been elected, but let's hope that I am wrong. One other little thing I just have to mention, Delmarie, you mentioned it takes 26. I want to remind you, which you already know, for a while there, we had 25, and the mayor, in this case, Mayor Washington, was able to break the tie, and we did quite a few things after the uh, famous uh, special elections in 86, when the 29-21 ended, and it was 25-25, exactly. with the addition of people like Chewy and Louie and others, and so the mayor was able to as long as he could keep his 25, keep his 25 together, he was a 26 vote. <laughs> um, so um, in, in closing all of this, um, there's so many, so many things to talk about relating to elections. Um, so you're, let me put it like this, you, you're, uh, you sound as, like you're pretty confident that both of these candidates could put together a working majority in the council. Um, 
Am I hearing that? Or uh, I don't know if it would be, one would think it would be easier for Vallis to do, given there's quite a few traditional aldermen. Um, a lot of it will depend on what black aldermen do. Uh, that's pretty important. Um, there are some black aldermen at the moment saying they're going to stay out of the mayor's race. Um, and some of that is because allegedly they're angry at CTU for running candidates against them. Uh, there's just a lot of different factors involved here. But any, any final thoughts on that about the ability of either Mr. Fallis or Mr. Johnson uh, to I don't, I don't think that the factions that existed in such a defined way <clears throat> in years past um, have as, as much hold on people. So I would expect that either uh, Paul Vallis or Brandon Johnson will be able to pull together a majority because when, when you are the 25th person, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're going to be promised a lot. And that's probably going to mean a lot more to you than some faction uh, to which you only have a small amount of loyalty or interest. No, and you, we've seen that. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the three of us could actually name those aldermen who <laughs> go along to get along. And they're 100 percent voting with the mayor, whoever the mayor is. There could be somebody off the street and they would vote with the mayor because it's the mayor. So that's always going to be the case. And we're already seeing some of that shape up in their endorsements. I can't help but I have to leave it with that since Delmarie <laughs> uh, made that uh, um, painful but truthful point. Um, remind us now, Edberg is gone. And then, because you mentioned the first ward, the first ward, of course, has been moved, but the famous first ward alderman who went to jail and was also mobbed up was Fred Brody. And the famous thing about Fred Brody is he he was a first ward alderman and all the rest of the aldermen who followed the mayor faithfully had to do was to see how Fred voted. And it was real easy for them. <laughs> so let's let's hope that there's more and more changes to that. Uh, so I promised you about 45 minutes. Uh, I thank both of you very much. Uh, I see why you are sought after um, in both the media and by campaigns. Um, so I, I really do appreciate um, uh, both uh, Del Maria and, and Dan's participation here. And thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll keep seeing your name in the papers, Del Marie. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs>